I love you, Katie. That's funny. What up? Welcome. You've already met me. I'll skip past all of that stuff. But yes, we're glad you're here. And it's good to be back, is it not? Yes, let's go. Um, one thing last about that small group, so with 28 groups, over 60 leaders, and I can tell you every single one of them chooses to be a small group leader because oftentimes in the past, God has moved in groups in their life and they want to give back to you. So don't just take it from me, take it from every single one of them. But last week, we kicked off a brand new series called I Am. And in the series I Am, we are looking at who is Jesus? That's the question we're trying to answer. And thankfully, Jesus has given us plenty of material to understand who he is. Nowhere is that more obvious than in the book of John. In the book of John, there are seven statements that Jesus makes that go something like this. They say, I am, and then there's a blank. And he fills in those blanks with different statements to reveal who he is. Last week we started and Jesus said, I am. Oh, that was so weak. Some of you were here last week. Jesus said, I am the gate. He said, I am the gate. And this week he's going to say something different, but in each and every one of those statements, he is revealing something about who he is and how we can follow him. And so we're on to another week in this. And ultimately our hope and our desire is this series is going to teach you more about Jesus. That as Christians, everything's about Jesus. The songs we sing, they're about Jesus. The word we study, it's about Jesus. The life we try to live, it's about Jesus. The reason we're gathered is it's about Jesus. And so anytime we can teach you more about Jesus, it's gonna be amazing. And so tonight I'm hoping it's the same, but before we get too deep, I gotta ask you a question. Have you ever gotten it just totally wrong? Come on, some honesty, yes. I'm talking about that moment where you have utter confidence, right? In your gut, everything in your being says, I am right. There is no way in the entire world that you could possibly be wrong, but then you're wrong. <laughs> that moment that is often mixed with maybe some embarrassment, maybe some humiliation, just that, that, that bitterness that comes with being wrong. And I'll give you a moment of humility. This happens to me all the time. <laughs> all of the time am I super confident yet super wrong. And never does it happen more than in marriage. So my wife and I, I uh, my wife Allie and I have been married just over four years. Aww, yeah, thank you. All right, I'll, I won't beg again tonight. But uh, yeah, we've been married just over four years and early on in our relationship, there was this thing I learned, right? I'll pass it on to you, here's a marriage tip. If you say it with enough confidence, Sometimes it's more believable, right? If you just bring enough confidence to it, it, it doesn't always matter if you know 100% if you're right. And so I started early on in our marriage to just say things with a ton of confidence, right? And I was, get, I was getting all these wins and disagreements and stuff, but eventually we got to this point where she knows, right? She knows that I use this tactic and I don't always know what I'm talking about, even though I, I believe that I do. And it happens over like, some stuff, but never is it more prevalent than when we're debating leftovers. I don't know if you have this debate with your, your family, but we are on the same page when it comes to the rule of leftovers. When you cook it, you've got about seven days for almost anything, right? Pizza, seven days. Tacos, seven days. Chicken, seven days. I know that's our rule. Some of you have your own rule, right? Some of you wouldn't touch leftovers if your life depended on it. Some of you, you're eating leftovers that are gonna take your life, right? Throw away the little Caesars, 
If it's got mold on it, you don't need to scrape that off. It's five bucks. I'll give you a new pizza. But we debate on leftovers, not about our general rule of seven days, but it's because we never can remember when we actually cooked the dang thing. Right? So as we inch close to that seven day mark, we start debating, right? I say it's Tuesday, right? It was Tuesday. We, we went and did this and we went and did this and we went and did this and we cooked it because we talked about this and we talked about this and then we went and did this after and I'm convinced it was Tuesday. And she sits back and she's much nicer than me. It's like, no, honey, it was Wednesday, right? We did this and we did this and I can be a bit, I can be a bit much, not just on stage, but, it, but in life. And so I start calling people. I'm like, I'm gonna get a whole team behind me. I am right, it was Tuesday, right? Like I talked to you and we cooked it and I sent you that snap and I'm joining like an army of people who are gonna go to battle with me over Tuesday. And all of this happens because I'm just trying to figure out if I can eat the dang lasagna or not again. But we have this, this disagreement and this debate and what happens, I'll just let you in on another piece of marriage advice is I'm typically wrong more than I'd like to admit. And when I'm wrong, something happens. There's like these consequences to being wrong. I, I feel some type of way and I often have made her feel some type of way and there's repercussions to me being wrong. And tonight we're looking at an instance like that because have you ever gotten it just wrong? Chances are every single one of us have in one instance or another from simple things to serious things, we've gotten it wrong before. Maybe for you, it was your great leftover debate. Or maybe it was that conflict you had with a friend where they did something to you and it was black and white, right? You were right, they were wrong. There's no debate about it. You don't have to have a discussion to this day. You still believe you were right. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter whose opinion you get, you are right. And as you fought in that, chances are you drove a stake in the relationship and there's weirdness, maybe not even a friendship left, but you were right. And then maybe you came down the road a little bit and you found out you were wrong. And you looked at this relationship that no longer is what it used to be and you have to deal with the consequences of being wrong. Or for you, maybe it was a political belief you held. You, you believed it. It was core to who you were. It was, it was so important to you that everywhere you went, and every person you saw, it didn't matter if they knew or wanted to know or not, you started to talk to them about their politi your political belief because you believed it. You were right. It didn't matter what they thought or what others thought, it was your opinion and your belief and you were right until you weren't. And then you had to deal with the consequences of being wrong. This has happened to us. Maybe not those two examples, but something like that where we so easily dive into a belief and we try and we fight and, and we push for that belief, but you can see it's easy to get entrenched to a belief and become blind to truth. It's easy to so passionately believe something, yet be wrong. All the while we have to recognize that truth matters. It does, as much as sometimes culture wants to tell us that it doesn't, truth does matter and it matters deeply. When we get stuff wrong, there's consequences. So tonight, Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd. He makes this statement in the book of John. He says, I am the good shepherd and in that he declares a truth about himself. In that truth he's declaring about himself, it has implications for the way that we live life. Not only that, it has implications for our eternal destiny yet it is a truth that is highly debated. 
that you can go back to the biblical times and you can stretch out history to today and there are people who have adamantly, passionately disagreed with Jesus, who have claimed he isn't who he says he was. And every single time someone takes that stance, there's consequences to that wrong belief. And so my heart tonight is that you wouldn't get pulled in with that, but rather I could teach you about the truth of who Jesus is. And so if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to John 10. If you don't have a Bible, out at the info desk in the foyer, we have free Bibles every Sunday night that we would love to give to you. Just feel free to swing by, take one on your way out. Otherwise, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. But as you flip to John 10, I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you tonight for the chance to open up your word. Thank you for your spirit who is present with us that wants to lead us to this word. I pray that you would teach us what we must hear and see and that we would walk away from here loving you more. In Jesus' name, amen. John 10, it starts like this. I'm just gonna read you the first five words. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you. Five words to start off the chapter of John 10. He says, very truly, I tell you. And oftentimes this feels like insignificant scripture. It's the stuff you just skim past as you're trying to cut to what's really deep, right? You're trying to get to the meat. But we can't do that tonight. And the reason is because there is a profound weight to these first five words Jesus has offered us. When he originally spoke them, he would have spoke them in the Greek language and then they would have been penned in Greek and now it has been translated to English. But if you look at the original Greek of these words, it starts like this. It says, amen, amen. Now, some of you are saying, I I've heard that Greek word before. Right, you might say it, amen. I'm not gonna judge, it's fine, right? Amen, amen is how Jesus starts this. And how we typically say it today is it's at the end of a prayer. And when amen is at the end of a prayer or at the end of a, a paragraph of text, it translates as this, it translates, let it be so. And so Christians, we end our prayer with amen, making this final declaration to God, let it be so, amen. However, when amen finds itself at the top of a paragraph, when it starts a body of text, it translates differently. Same word, but different meaning. So instead of amen, meaning let it be so, when Jesus says amen, amen to start chapter 10, what he is saying is a very firm truly. It's why if you're holding an ESV Bible in front of you, it would read truly, truly. Jesus is putting this emphasis on the start of his text. Actually, when you read the Bible, you'll notice repetition is there for effect. I tell you all of this to say, Jesus is stressing what we're about to read tonight. He is putting extra importance to both the audience of that day and to us this, tonight. He is saying, truly, truly, very truly, amen, amen. And if I could translate it for you, Jesus is saying straight up, you need to hear this. It is in all caps, this is important. But I get it. Everything Jesus says is important. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He is X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, give him the title. Like he's everything, right? Everything he says is important. But there are four gospel books to start your New Testament. And as you flip through those four, you're gonna find all kinds of red letters that are all quotes by Jesus. He said so many things that they're all important. But when the Messiah, the son of God, when Jesus highlights its importance, that should cause us to lean in. Because across the gospels, not every time does Jesus speak, does he start with this declaration of importance. 
But here in John 10, in the midst of what is a body of work and in a life of ministry, when Jesus has said many words, he wants us to put extra importance on John chapter 10. When the Messiah says something and he highlights, you, highlights it for you, we better lean in and take note. Amen, amen. He follows those words by saying, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. I'm gonna assume we know stealing and robbing is bad. If you watched any movie growing up, read any book, or had any plot line described to you, the robbers and the thieves are bad guys. Even as a little kid, I understood this. When I was about five or six years old, there was a, a period of time, I'd say it was probably about a year, where I couldn't fall asleep at night because I was convinced robbers were breaking into my house. I lived in a yuppie neighborhood in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I was terrified of people breaking in. Nobody was coming into my house, but yet every single night I would cry and whine and I couldn't fall asleep because I was convinced because the robbers and the thieves, they scared me. And when we hear Jesus's parable tonight, I think we need to feel a little of that fear. We need to understand what we're dealing with here, that the thieves and robbers are people we should be apprehensive of associating with. There should be this, this step back, this further examination of this group of people because yes, they were wrong. And none of that is that crazy. It shouldn't be groundbreaking to you. But things get a little spicy when, when Jesus starts to call the Pharisees thieves and robbers. The Pharisees, they were a group of religious leaders who obsessed over the rules. Their entire focus was to make sure everybody in the nation of Israel obeyed every law perfectly. They believed that the rules were the most important thing to God. And so they led the people of Israel, they led God's chosen people in a way that they said, you better act right. You better stack up those good works. You better do enough good stuff. And maybe... Just maybe if you get it right perfectly, maybe God will be pleased with you. And all the while, the Pharisees, this group of religious people, their belief system oppressed people. It oppressed people. The nation of Israel found itself walking around on eggshells trying to live up to this bar of perfection trying to just make it through the day living up to the rules and burdens placed upon them. And some of you feel that. You know what it's like to be expected to, to perform perfectly all the time. You feel some of that religious burden. You felt that oppression maybe by the church, by a family, by a friend, or you have put it on yourself. But some of us, we have felt that perfection is the only way. And it oppressed the people. But boy, did the Pharisees believe it. They believed it, it was core to who they were. If they were gonna have any idea communicated, it was this idea, it was intrinsic to the way that they functioned in life. Everybody that they could talk to, everybody that they led, they spread this belief, they spread this confidence that you must live perfectly. And when they did that, they oppressed people. And we see that wrong beliefs hold the consequences. We see that like thieves and robbers, the Pharisees hindered people from a relationship with God. 
what they held as this strong belief actually blocked people from stepping into what God truly desired for them. If you flip back just a page in your Bible, if you're holding it, go ahead and literally turn back one page, you'll find yourself in John chapter nine. There is no probably better illustration of what we just talked about than in John chapter nine. Jesus has just healed a blind man. Like I'm talking a guy who has never seen in his life, born blind. He literally has never seen, he runs into Jesus, he sees. The miraculous has happened. Jesus has opened the eyes of the blind. It's a miracle, but not to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are sitting there and in a moment of what should be ecstasy and excitement and joy and praise and gratitude, right? It should be a moment of worship. They sit back in the corner and they bitterly gripe about Jesus because he healed on a day he wasn't supposed to. He healed on what they called the Sabbath and that was a day they were only supposed to rest and they considered what Jesus did work. And so they're ticked because Jesus healed a man but he broke one of their rules and they believed in their rules as confidently as any of us could believe anything. They believed in their rules so much so that they actually kick this blind man who is now healed out of worship. He's no longer allowed into the synagogue. The, the, the miracle Jesus has just done, he gave this guy sight back and they can't even see it. They're blinded by their own beliefs. So I ask you this question. What beliefs might blind you from Jesus? What beliefs, what are you believing? What are you holding to? What are you so confident in that actually might be blinding you from Jesus? It's easy to point to some of the really obvious things, right? We've talked about those before. We'll talk about them again in the future, but it's easy to look at those things, right? You can see those, others can see those, and you can see how that could be a barrier in your relationship with Jesus, but don't miss what the Pharisees struggled with. Because some of us, we got some Pharisee in us. What they did is they piled religious burden and shame on people. They told them, your actions make you right with God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever felt that? Have you felt that religious burden and shame? so steeped in the pressure of relationship or religion that you miss out on relationship with God. A belief that drives you to work and work and work and stress and stress and stress and it often leaves you tired and depleted and frustrated because you've never been able to be enough. Have you felt that? What beliefs are you holding that have blinded you from Jesus? Verse two, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. After understanding what's wrong, Jesus begins to tell them what's right. And he highlights the shepherd as the right character in this parable. Then he associates himself as the shepherd. In in the most honest, plain, straightforward way, can I encourage you to follow Jesus? No fancy language, no story illustration, no passion or emotion or anything in the most plain and simple way, can I encourage you, follow Jesus, follow him. Follow him wherever he chooses to lead you. He is the shepherd who knows what is right. 
He is the one who cares for you, who loves you, who created you, and who is calling you. I can't put it any more simple. I can't put it any more straightforward, but I think you should follow Jesus because he's trustworthy. Ultimately, I think you should follow him because he knows you. Jesus knows you. That passage of text, that says, the shepherd calls the sheep by name. I love that. I am, you have, you've probably already judged me, so it's fine, I'll just say it. I don't have an agricultural bone in my body, right? I've never spent any time with sheep, no cows. I have a phobia of horses. Um, I don't, and don't judge me. I don't even really like dogs. I'm sorry. Please come back to Oasis. <laughs> We're not all like me. All right, but... But in that, I can picture Jesus walking into the sheep pen and he sees his sheep and he's like, hey, cloudy, hey, marshmallow, right? He's like, he's finding another one and I don't, what's, what's another thing that's white? Someone, toilet, hey, toilet paper, right? <laughs> Jesus is naming these sheep. He knows these sheep's name. He walks in and he calls his sheep by name. And I love that. I love that because there's this beautiful intimacy in that that to Jesus, these are not nobody's sheep. They're not faceless, nameless nobodies. These are his sheep. He knows them. He calls them by name. There's a relational intimacy there. I remember when I was a little kid, I went to a football camp at the local high school and I thought it was the coolest thing ever, right? You showed up as like a second grader and there was a senior in high school and you, you I mean, I, to me, he was getting max contracts. Like he was breaking rushing records. I thought he was incredible. He was probably the third string running back, but, but I thought he was incredible. I loved the fact that I got to hang out with this guy. And as I showed up to this camp, there were hundreds of other kids there. I'm talking mass chaos, like kids everywhere, running, screaming, crying, throwing the ball, getting hit by the ball, mass chaos. And in the midst of that, on day one, this running back leaned over to me and he said, what's your name? And at this moment I thought, I'm him, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've got the sauce, like I'm going to the pros, like this guy, nods, he wants to know my name? My football career ended in eighth grade. But in that moment, I, I will never forget when he leaned over and he asked me for my name among all of the kids there. And for the next week as I showed up to camp, you know what happened? I'd kick the ball. He said, that was good, Brennan. I'd go to a different station. He'd say, see you, Brennan. I'd show up. He'd say, what's up, Brennan? Are you having a good day, Brennan? And for those moments, I knew he knew me. Amongst hundreds of kids, he called me by name. And Jesus does the same to you. Among billions of people in the world, billions of people, he knows you. He knows you. He calls you by name. He loves you. He cares for you. You are not a project. You are not just an abstract person. You are not just some number or statistic to Jesus. He knows you. He calls you by name. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows your struggle. He knows your shame. He knows you. And he says, come to me. That's why I think you should follow Jesus. It's because he knows you. Jump down to verse 11 for me. Jesus plainly states, I am the good shepherd. And at this point, some of you are like, are you serious, dude? 
it has taken you 25 minutes to get to the main text? Sorry, yes. This is the statement we've been building to all night. Jesus in John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the problem with that is, is I feel like we don't value the word good anymore. To us, good is just a nonsense response that we throw out to all kinds of questions all the time. I'm standing out in the foyer and we did the the Midwest greeting, me and like 500 of you. And what did I say? I said, hey, how are you? And you said, good, good, Brennan, doing fine. What did I respond back? I said, good, things are good, right? And you walked in here, you were stressed, you said good. You were tired, you said good. You were lonely, you said good. Right, you were overwhelmed by all of the people, you said good. All of these things maybe were happening in your life, but what came out of your mouth was the statement, I'm just fine, we're doing good. And it sums up the way we currently use the word good. It has become this middle of the road, descriptive word that holds no weight, yet Jesus is the good shepherd. And some of us live like that. We live like Jesus is just, eh, fine. Jesus, eh, he's good. We live like Jesus is this guy who, who, yeah, he's not bad, but he's not anything to get too excited about. So we just camp in the middle and we say, yeah, Jesus is good. We admit his goodness without holding any weight to the claim. We claim faith in Jesus, but it doesn't impact the way we live because he's just good. Jesus is the good shepherd. The word good back in the Greek is the word kolos. And kolos means a whole lot more than just fine. Jesus as the kolos shepherd means he is good, beautiful, handsome, excellent, eminent, choice, surpassing, precious, useful, suitable, commendable, admirable, magnificent, genuine, approved, competent, able, praiseworthy, noble, pure, moral, honorable, and the comforting shepherd. That's what kalos means. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is this beautiful shepherd that when we see him, we should respond in worship. Jesus is this excellent shepherd that beyond any other shepherd you could ever choose to follow, he is excellent. He is this precious shepherd, this shepherd who when we come to him, we should be so privileged as to get to worship and follow him. He is the commendable one, that he is good in all that it means to be commendable. He is magnificent, worthy of praise, awe-striking, holy, holy, holy is this shepherd. He's genuine, everything about him. There's no falsehood, no fakery, no nothing apart from Jesus except that what is genuine. He is comforting. Can I go back and tell you, Jesus knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is more than just some middle of the road, fine guy to follow. He's everything we've ever needed and more. He's good. And that wasn't a title just taken by him, he embodies it. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
the hired hand is not the shepherd, and so he doesn't own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep. I mean, he literally dips off the scene and he runs away because the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. What Jesus is describing here is someone who takes ownership versus someone who just oversees. And I get that. About a couple weeks ago, maybe a month, I took a vacation out to Yosemite National Park in California. If you ever get the chance, man, God is really good. And I flew into Vegas and don't, I already told you don't judge me, but yes, I flew into Vegas and I rented a car and we drove up to California. And as we were driving, I have uh, a couple of faults, but one of them is I, I struggle to see speed bumps. I promise I'm an okay driver. I just have a, nobody's perfect, right? And so I struggle to see speed bumps. And so I'm flying like one does, right? And I crushed some speed bumps. I'm talking butts left seats, heads hit ceiling kind of crushed, right? Like you just drove right through them. I'm just like all happy and giddy. Cause I, you know, like it's fine, but everyone else is really suffering, including the rental car. But you know, who's not worried about it? Me. It's a rental. <laughs> it's a rental. Some of you are treating your rental house properties like this right now. You're like, ooh, it broke. Pipes burst, heats out, oven doesn't work. Pfft, rental, right? <laughs> but take me back to Brookings for a second. And I hit one of the 14 million potholes in this city. <laughs> My heart just sinks, right? My poor baby Mazda, come on. One pothole and it's ruined my whole day. And you're starting to see the difference between ownership and overseeing. When ownership is involved, it changes our actions. And Jesus takes ownership over his flock. He is the good shepherd who won't flee when times get tough. The hired hand has no ownership of the flock. He doesn't truly know or care for the flock. And so when a threat comes, he's gone. He's only there to make his paycheck and leave. But Jesus is different. Jesus takes ownership of his flock, his sheep. He cares for them. He loves them. He knows them. And so when the greatest threat came, when sin entered the world at the origin, and then when every single one of us have sinned, am sinning, will sin, there created this separation between us and God. And that separation is a scary place to be because when we are separated from God, it makes us vulnerable to the thieves, to the robbers, to the enemy. But this is how good God is. When we abandon him, he didn't abandon us. When we turned our back on him, which we have done, right? When we have fallen short of all he has called us to, when we walked away from him, he never walked away from you, not for a second. Instead, he sent his son, the son of God, the good shepherd, Jesus, and his son did what only Jesus could do. He lived the perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He was pinned to that cross, murdered by the people he came to save. Three days later, though, he rose from the grave. And when he did, he embodied the term, the good shepherd, because the good shepherd takes ownership of his flock. This threat came and Jesus did not turn his back on us. No, he laid his life down and Jesus sacrificed his life so that we could live ours with God again. That's the good news of what Jesus has come to do. 
Verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know me and I know my sheep. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for my sheep. Relationship is not just about one person knowing another. Relationship is a two-way street in which we give and we take. And Jesus is making the same claim here. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. We've just talked about how Jesus knows us. He loves us. He's done everything in his power to know you. But my question in return is, do you know Jesus? He knows you, but do you know Jesus? And when I ask that question, I'm not just asking about your religious activities. I'm not concerned with your religious resume. It might be long, it might be short. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? In an intimate, deep, personal way, do you know him? One last Greek word for you. That word know there is the word gnosko. And it's the same word in verse 14 as it is in verse 15. And in verse 15, Jesus has changed the direction of the relationship. He's no longer talking about us and him. He's talking about him and his father. Many of us typically just call the father God and together God and Jesus are, are inseparable in the unit, in the unity of the Trinity. They are together, knowing each other in a relational deep way and in an indescribable sense that we can't even often fathom, but Jesus and the Father, they know one another. There's no distance between them. There's no gap between them. There's nothing hidden between them. They know each other. In the same word Jesus uses to describe his relationship with the Father, he uses to describe our relationship with him. Do you know Jesus? a deep, connected, nothing hidden, 100% sold out, in love, walking with, open, honest, transparent type of relationship. Do you know Jesus? Remember at the beginning, Jesus stressed just how important this was. In all the things he ever said in the gospels, there are highlighted moments when he told us, lean in, take note, this is one of those moments. And it started with a challenge. He said, don't follow the thieves and the robbers. Instead, follow the good shepherd. And then he told us, I am the good shepherd because he has given everything so that we might have something with God. His command, his challenge is follow him. Yet I'll finish with this. Verse 19, it reads, the Jews who heard these words by Jesus were again divided. And I wanna finish with this because I need you to recognize that they had a choice. Jesus preached these important words and the people got to choose whether they believed them or not. They could choose whether they followed the thieves and the robbers into a place where, where they didn't want to go or they could choose to follow the one good shepherd. They could choose to believe Jesus is who he says he is that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the savior, that he will be their Lord, that he is trustworthy and kind and good. They could believe that or not. Tonight, we have a choice, a choice whether to follow Jesus or not. I can't make it for you. The person next to you can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. 
your grandparents, your friends. Nobody can make this choice for you but you. But you have a choice tonight. When Jesus has declared who he says he is, will you believe him or not? I encourage you to take him up on his offer because there is life found in Jesus. There is hope found in Jesus. There is peace found in Jesus. Everything he offers you is good and it's exactly what you've been desiring.